Well, I ran this morning, and I can tell you it's cold. And we're grateful for everybody filling in uh, for Daniel Reclue this morning. He is up in Amarillo where it's really cold, and uh, they're up there, their son's in like the Cowboy National Championships or something like that. It's a national championship. I just can't tell you totally what it is, only that I could not do it. And uh, they're up there. We're, so we appreciate those who fill in this morning. Uh, church family, we're going to, I hope you have your Bible. And, and if you don't, uh, we've got the Bible in the pew back in front of you. But we're going to dive right in this morning back into James. And if you remember, if, if you were here last week, we, we asked this question. There, there is a criticism that is uh, unfortunately common, and it's not new. But there's a criticism about uh, many churches and a criticism that those who are skeptical of Christ or or unwilling to uh, conform to his ways, we'll throw out there, and it's, well if, well, if Jesus is really so good, if Jesus is really so great, why is the church so messed up? Why are there so many problems in the church? Why is there bickering and quarreling? Why, why is this? And we walked through, and, and, and we throw that criticism out as if somehow the fact that there are issues inside of the body of Christ negates Jesus being who he says he is. And we understand when you come to Scripture, Scripture does not hide from the fact that when you take a group of people saved by grace, reconciled to God out of sin, in whom the Holy Spirit is working out that salvation, and you put them into a family, i.e. the local body, the church, there's potential for challenges, for quarrels, for fighting, for these things. Half the New Testament wouldn't be written if it wasn't the case. Because half the New Testament is Paul or James or another writer writing to a church that's all sorts of messed up. And so understand, as we deal with that reality, the same problem 2,000 years ago is the same problem today. And for those critics, they have to understand and reconcile them with the fact that they won't stand in, on Judgment Day before the church, but before Christ. But church, we need to reconcile and understand the fact that we will stand before Christ as ambassadors to this world, so we've got to make sure we deal with those things that are there. And you'll, you'll remember why these things are true. Dan, uh, James answers this question last week. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not, is not the source of your pleasures, your desires, your needs, which are waging war in your members, both inside, internally, in you, and then amongst each other? You lust, you are lusting, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you, you are not asking, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So remember what he says last week. He says, why? Why are there issues inside of churches? Now, by the way, just to clarify, because someone asked this, uh, I, we're not walking through this passage because I'm aware of some glaring issue that we're secretly hiding from the church. We're walking through the passage because we go verse by verse, and this is where we are. We're here in James 4, but we understand that when churches have quarreling, when there's quarreling going on inside of your home as believers, when there's, when there's conflict raging inside of a body of Christ like First Baptist Pfluger, when those things happen, what's the reason for it? It's because we as people have desires, have uh, needs, have longings that we are seeking to satisfy, according to James here, that we are seeking to satisfy in a self-centered way 
that ignores how God would deal with those things and that comes amongst others and goes, my need, my desire, and its fulfillment, its gratification is more important than you and your need. And what God wants to do in your life, it is ultimately self-centeredness that causes the problems. And so look what he says as he continues on further. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is open hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that scripture speaks vainly for no purpose, saying he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? But God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, you who are quarreling, you in these churches where though they are facing challenging external pressure, hardship, injustice in the culture they are living in, internally, it's not the external pressure causing them to go after each other. It's their own self-centered actions to fulfill their desires. And he says to them who are quarreling, you adulteresses. Now that's a weighty term to throw out at, at any point in society. But built on the background of the Old Testament where the people of God in Israel would, would sway from their loyalty and proper worship to God and they would begin to bow down to other idols, to other gods. And throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets, probably foremost in the book of Hosea, God calling his people adulteresses speaks to the fact that when you are a child of God, if you're in this room, if you're watching online and you never have a relationship with Jesus Christ because you have responded to who he is and what he's done by coming to him in repentance and faith, there's been a point where you've asked Jesus to use the old-fashioned term. You've asked Jesus in your heart because you understand you're a sinner, he's God, and he and his grace has saved you. Then if, if that's you in this place, you are, according to Scripture, a Christian. And that means you are in a relationship of the utmost intimacy and personalness with the God of the universe. When James uses a term like you adulteress, it should certainly catch everybody's attention, but understand it should catch everybody's attention because it speaks to something relational. There is a breakdown, a disloyalty in the relationship, and it's not on the part of God. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not understand something that Something that is, is knowledge you should have had from the point of salvation. It's a, it's a perfect verb. So something that you already know back here and should be true. You, are, you already know the truth. This is not new for you. This is not concealed. It's a fundamental fact of the gospel message. The world's broken. We're born sinners. Jesus is Lord. Salvation is possible by grace through faith. It reconciles us to him and his ways. And so there is no excuse for a child of God to forget but yet you've forgotten, do you not know, he says, something you should already know, that friendship, the support and approving of the world, that friendship, a term that means to love something and desire to be loved in return, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, is open hostility, is antagonism, is direct opposition to God. 
You already know this, friendship with the world. And that term world there is not friendship with the earth. As if, you know, if you really like going outside in the cold weather, that if, you, you know, if you're a friend of the cold weather, you're an enemy of, that's not at all what it's talking about. Friendship with the world, that term world certainly can mean the earth, but it's a term that refers to the world systems. It's the values, the beliefs, the morals that are driving culture and culture are pushing in front. It's that way of lostness and brokenness that is an outright rebellion and rejection of God. What, what are, what's the world's system today, church family? What are beliefs? What about naturalism? The belief that all that is real is only that which can be seen and touched in front of you. Therefore, there is no supernatural. There is no God of any kind. Or, or what about those who, who follow false religions where they believe in outright false gods? Buddha, Muhammad, go on down the line. Allah. There's beliefs prevalent in our society, church family, that if you're a human, you are born innately good. All of that's in contrast to Scripture, which says that, yes, the natural world exists, but, but there is an unseen realm. God is real. All of that's in contrast to Scripture, which said there's not multiple gods. There's one God. The Lord your God is one. Hero Israel. All of that's in contrast to Scripture, which says man is not born innately good. Man is born innately valuable, but inherently sinful and broken. What are some of the values? Individualism. It's all about me, how I can make myself stand out. What am I going to achieve? What am I going to take in contrast to Scripture, which preaches death of self? It's all about success, beauty, fame, applause. How, how can people look at me and, and prop me up? We value in society, the world system of the world, tolerance. And by tolerance, what we mean is affirmation. I am going to be what I am going to be, and you better affirm me and applaud me for being how I want to be. And if you don't, you are a bigot. What about morals? We live in a culture of pragmatism. It's good if it works. That's what pragmatism is. By the way, if you're a philosophy buff, the only school of philosophy that is truly and inherently, from a historical perspective, birthed in America is pragmatism. If it works, it's good. Did it work? Did it, did it make me money? Then whatever it did to make me money, it's good. Did it work? Did it bring me pleasure? Did it make me feel good? Well, then it's good. It's pragmatism. We live in a world that values relativism. How oh, it's true for you, it's true for you, it's true for me, it's true for you. I'm just owning my truth. It's obviously in contrast to Scripture, which preaches absolute and objective truth. We're a culture that, from a moral standpoint, values utilitarianism. The ends justify the means. Whatever I, if, if the means is good, if, if the end goal is good, if the, the end goal is, is my child getting into the college of their dreams to have the degree of their dreams, then whatever ends between there and that goal happen are good. Whatever has to happen to get in between me and, and having a, a, a successful career where I, where I have done something of substance, it is good. These are the beliefs, the values, the morals that drive our society, and we see them expressed all the time. We see them expressed in ways where maybe in our workplaces there's opportunities to stand and discuss truth, but 
but we choose to just maybe keep silent or, or maybe, maybe we come across a little ambiguous on hot topic moral issues so that we either stay out of controversy or so that we don't jeopardize our chances of career advancement. Or maybe it expresses itself in the way that we live in accordance with the world's standards of success and morality. Success is defined by the house you live in, the car that you drive, the shoes that you wear, the clothes that you adorn yourself with. Success is driven by what the following is on social media, by how many people view you as an expert and, and applaud you, by, by the morals. It doesn't matter that even secular statistics demonstrate that a, a couple living together outside of marriage is exponentially more likely to get divorced. Forget the fact that scripture doesn't condone it, but it's the way the world works, and so we find ways to go around it. We find ways to raise our children in accordance with the world's standards of success. Understand, if you're a parent in this room, that's fine to care about your kids' grades, but if you care more about your kids' grades than their relationship with the Lord, you got it backwards. If your kid follows and loves Jesus, the grades will work it out. But I know a lot of kids who have great grades who have no heart for Christ and grew up in the church. We use our words in lighthearted and casual manner. Scripture says, let your yes, your yes, and your no be no. But culture says, you know, say whatever you have to to get what you need. And you agree to that? You can back out of that thing. Oh, you know what? Your resume, you want to make your resume look as good as possible. So however you can use words and not directly lie, it may not be totally true what you put in print, but it's not necessarily a lie either. When Scripture says... Christians should have nothing to do with falsehood. Or here's one. Culture says whatever brings laughter and entertainment, happiness, it's good. So we as Christians find ways to excuse watching and filling our minds with shows filled with rampant nudity, with music filmed with, filled with ex, uh, rampant ex, explicit material all in the name of entertainment and pleasure. By the way, friendship with the world is not just individualistic as if it's only sins that can happen that I can perform as an individual. It can be corporate. It can be corporate. A church can be driven by friendship with the world. When a church wants to be a country club focused more on its comfort and buildings and pedigree than actually the mission of God. When a church operates ministries to satisfy the biggest tithers rather than to glorify her Lord. When a church will certainly welcome anybody, but is only going to pour time and energy and investment into reaching and molding a certain kind of person. That looks remarkably like the same kind of people the world props up. The church can do it by capitulating or being ambiguous on truth in order to be liked and trendy. By being, having the mindset of we've got to go brig at all costs no matter how it impacts other churches in the area. Understand, church family, the beliefs, the values, the morals of this world, they influence us more than we care to admit. Now let's be clear, friendship with the world is not the same thing as being friends with someone of the world. By all means, have friends that don't know Jesus. If you don't have friends that don't know Jesus, how are we going to ever share Jesus with them? You have family members that don't know Jesus. It's not saying not to have relationships with people that don't know Jesus. Now, it would provide a word of caution to say you need to be the bigger influence over them and not them be the bigger influence over you. 
But it doesn't mean not to be friends with people in the world any more than it means. Friendship with the world does not mean that we as a church withdraw from the world. That we insulate ourselves, that we create our own things, that we pull out of places that are secular or, or out there in the world. It doesn't mean that. In fact, that's a contradiction of Jesus' prayer in John 17 where he says, Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but you protect them in the world. It means it's impossible if we remove ourselves from the world to fulfill the Great Commission because you can't fulfill making disciples of all nations if you're not out amongst lost people of all nations. It means you can't fulfill the cultural mandate, which we don't talk a lot about, but that's God's call on our lives to go, to, to create families, to have children, to, to create culture. If the enemy's the driver of secular culture, we ought to be the driver of pure culture. But 100 years ago, specifically in our country, uh, churches began to face harsher and harsher opposition culturally, and what actually happened was we removed ourselves from the schools and the school boards. We removed ourselves from the political arenas. We removed ourselves from the arts, Hollywood, the music industry. We began to remove ourselves, and we didn't wake up and realize that until it's too late, and look where we are today. Friendship with the world doesn't mean taking ourselves out of the world. But it means that as we live and move and breathe in the world, amongst and knowing and loving people who are, don't know Christ, we are doing so not driven by the beliefs, values, and morals of the world and its systems, but by the beliefs, values, and morals of our God. Says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world? And look what it says. It's not not okay with God. It's not a disappointment to God. It is hostility, a word that means a deep-seated ill will and hatred. In Romans 8, it talks about the mind of the flesh of being, being in hatred of the mind of the spirit. It says that when you and I allow ourselves, when you and I seek ourselves, and by the way, let me jump ahead. Look at what it says. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever wishes means to desire something with the implication of planning to go get it. It's to will for something, to want something. It carries the connotation of choosing something over another which means when you and I actively, knowingly desire and put ourselves in places where we walk according to the beliefs, values, and morals of the world, where we want to love those things and be loved by those things, when that is the mindset we are operating with, it says we are, we are putting ourselves in open hostility, deep-seated hatred of our Lord, Savior, Father, King. means we find ourselves resenting his standards because they deny us our pleasure. We find ourselves aligning. We may not think we are, but aligning with the devil, the demons, and the lost and broken world. All of a sudden, that hostility means rather than being intimacy and fellowship between me and the Lord, there is now ill will, there is hatred, there is bitterness. And I love the way the language is here in the text church family because Many times we may not think we are being actively hostile to the Lord. When you take, I just use this example. When a parent 
encourages their child to work hard, nothing wrong with that. To express that in good grades, nothing wrong with that. When that parent wants that child to be able to to, to grow up, to find a job, to care. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a fine line between desiring those things as good things and crossing the line to drive your child to desire those things at all costs, to find their worth, their value and identity at all costs. And, and all of a sudden you go, well, it doesn't seem like I'm, I'm, I'm just in outright hostility towards God. I'm not an outright, I don't, I don't hate God, even though I miss half the Sundays of a year because we've got our child in this thing and that thing and the other thing. No, listen. This is why I love the language of the text, church family, because it does speak hard to all of us. It doesn't matter whether we intend it as hostility to God or not. It's not just the mammoth and massive and critical decisions. It's the everyday bread and butter of living the self-pleasing life that whether we intend it to be or not, it doesn't matter. It is open, outright bitterness and hostility and hatred to God. Now, well, pastor, what does that mean? If outright hatred, I, I, that, that's almost kind of sound. Does that mean that we as, if, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm a Christian, I've come to faith in Christ. I'm not a Christian because I was born into a Christian family. I'm not a Christian because I went to church. I'm not a Christian because I read my Bible. I'm a Christian because there came this point, the Holy Spirit convicted me that I'm a sinner by nature, which is why I sin in thought and action but that Jesus lived the life that I couldn't, that he paid the price I rightfully deserved, that he died, that he rose, and if, and if I trust him, if I place the fullness of my being on him in faith, if I faith him, then by his grace, his sheer benevolent goodness that has nothing to do with my, 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 my merit or, or deservingness, he'll save. You say, well, that's what I meant, and, and if I'm saved, this kind of sounds like, can, can, can you lose your salvation? What if I go, do I go from a child of God to an enemy of God? What does this mean? Well, let me clarify, church family, make sure we're all on the same page. When James uses the term hostility, enmity, being an enemy of God, he does not in any way mean that we lose our salvation. The peace that you and I have with God, according to Romans 5, that comes through faith, the peace that we have with God relationally is not through our effort, and it's never been. It's through the blood of Christ by grace. It's not through efforts of ourselves and merit. It's not secured because we looked up and earned it. It was, in fact, secured for us when we were, by nature, actual enemies of God. It's conditioned on the will of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and it is sealed by the Holy Spirit who cannot unseal you. Our name, my name is written on his heart and I know that while in heaven he stands, no voice can bid me thence depart. If you are in Christ, you are secure forever whether you are walking in great fellowship with God or whether you are walking in enmity with God. What James uses language here is not to say that you ever lose your seat at the table. If you're in Christ, you are seated at the table as a, as a son or daughter of the king. But it's saying that we who've been seated at the table reconciled to God, who should be living in this intimacy and fellowship with God, we've gotten lured away and distracted and enticed through our own desires and seeing the temptation of sin and that our seeking after those desires puts us in a place where the way we're living is not a way of intimate, peaceful fellowship with God, but it's hostility to who He is. The relationship is not in question, 
but the fellowship is. So church family, right here in verse 4, we got to understand the truth of what is, what is pointed out. Our problems with each other, our conflicts inside of the body, whether it's something going on here at church, and again, I'm not hinting at anything, whether it's between groups or individuals, the conflicts that take place in our homes. If you're single with your roommate, if you're married with your spouse, your kids, if you're a kid with your siblings, with your parents, those conflicts take place at the core because we are self-centeredly pursuing our own desires, our own wants, our own needs. And what James shows us here, if that's what we saw last week, then what James exposes here is that when we do that, the ultimate issue is not between me and you. The ultimate issue is between me and God. When, if, if conflict breaks out among us, it won't be because we have conflict just with each other. It's going to have at its root the fact that somewhere we began to have conflict with our own father because we began to say, not your glory, but my pleasure. This is what he says. This is what he says. And it comes through ordinary means, not just big things. That's why I used the examples last week of simple things. It's not wrong to have a preference of music you like. But it's wrong to demand your preference as if church is all about you. It's not wrong to have a preference of do you like church, big church first? and then Sunday school or Sunday school first in big church. It's not wrong to have a preference. It's not wrong to share your, your, your preference if you do it nicely. But it's wrong to demand. It's, it's not wrong to have a preference of which way the silverware go into the dishwasher. How to fold towels. But it's wrong to demand and relentlessly pursue my own satisfaction through everyone doing what I want so I can have my own pleasure. And that can come through big things, and that can come through the most ordinary things of life. But look at what else he says. He says, you ought to, you ought to know this. But then he says this. Or he asks another question. Do you just think, are you just supposing? You're just pondering? Or, or, or I wrote it, out, wrote it out this way. Are you just walking around, going through life, supposing God isn't actually serious about what he says? He says, are you just, are you just supposing that scripture speaks for no purpose when it says his jealous, his je he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us? Do you just think it speaks for no reason? That God, God jealously, and this, this is all thing when you say, what, what does that mean? Jealousy, that's, that's a bad thing. Well, it's a bad thing for us because when we're jealous, it taps into our own self-centered pursuit of our desires. But the language there in scripture speaks two things. It says that he desires jealously. He desires, present tense, he's always desiring. Do you know that? God desires you. God desires you. He's always desiring, present tense. It's active, meaning it's not something external forcing God to desire you. God desires you, God desires me out of the sheer goodness of his heart. He desires not just, not just you or me, but it says jealously, he desires all of us. All aspects of my life, all aspects of your life, he desires it all. Jealousy means an appropriate desire for what a person has a loving and righteous right to. You know, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, it means uh, if, if I see another guy flirting with Bethany, I should feel jealousy. And that's a good jealousy. Why? 
because I have the right to Bethany and no other man does. Vice versa, I don't have the right to go around and flirt with someone who's not Bethany. She has that right in my life. This is what jealousy is. This is what it is as applied to God. It's, it expresses an unwavering desire for the good and the welfare of the one who is loved and it expresses in reciprocation the fact that that, that person's love in return should be expected. And when we speak of God, God is, God is not looking for our love in return because he needs us. No, it's because he's worthy. His jealousy, his jealousy over our lives, that our lives would not be built on the system of the world, but on him, that jealousy of the jealousy of his commands that yes, step in and call us out and call our self-centeredness out and, and say things like, you adulteress, why are you being a friend with the world? That jealousy, church family, it's not driven by some egomaniac God. It is driven by a God who earnestly desires every part of our being, even the parts we don't like and the parts that world and its systems would reject and mock and make fun of. A God that desires the wholeness of our being because he actually wants to give us good. And he is good. says that God desires, and there's different ways, there's two different ways you can translate the Greek. One would say that God desires the spirit as in the human spirit, which he's made to dwell within us, which would mean God is the giver of life, and he desires not just part of our life, he desires all of our life. The other way you can, you can translate it the way the words relate is God desires the spirit as in the Holy Spirit, God himself, whom he's made to dwell within us. Either way you wanna go, the point is the same. God did not save and reconcile us, church family, so we could joyously continue to think and act in sin, but get a get out of hell card in the end. He wants all of us, all parts of our life. There is no part of our life that is to be driven by a world's belief, value, or system. He is, jealousy is intense, yes, and it is good because it is for our good and our actual joy. Because as much as the world promises joy, there is no joy in the sins of the world. There is only joy in him who is joy. Now, if this first part of the sermon in the text, you go, wow, that's a heavy passage, Pastor. Yes. But now James takes us to something that's equally heavy, but, but in a way that will just blow our minds and fill us with hope. Look what he says. But he gives a greater grace. It says, but he gives. So here he says, hey, do you not understand, church family, that these conflicts, these quarrels that are amongst you, where you are self-centeredly pursuing to satisfy your own desires, that ultimately those are rooted in a friendship with the world. And that friendship with the world, it's open hostility to God, to his heart, to his ways, to his character. And he is jealous. Do you not understand? He wants all of you. And if all of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, and I begin to process, look at, look at all the aspects of God, all the things he says in his word, all the ways that even as a saved man or woman, I fall short. Oh, and he says, oh, but, but child of God, he gives greater grace. He gives, present tense, active voice, meaning God is always delighting to give. There is never a time where he is not giving. It speaks to an unyielding tirelessness to aid and support his own children. 
It's, he act, actively asks, and what does he give? He gives grace. Now grace, very simply, is the idea of something that is good, the giver in his sheer goodness, who owes the one who is in need nothing. The one who is in need cannot earn it, will never deserve it, cannot, cannot work up, cannot pay it off. But grace is, is, is the giver going, in, in my sheer goodness, I am going to, to create something that addresses that need that you could never earn. You would, you, you're not qualified for it. You don't deserve it. But I give it. That's grace. We find that grace. The grace of God saves us. But here's what we often forget, church family. The same grace of God that saves us from our own sin nature is the same grace of God that by the Holy Spirit who lives within us works out that salvation, use theology term, our sanctification. It's the same grace that sustains us, that protects us, and even preserves us both when we walk in light of that grace and even when we says he gives a greater grace. Yes, is there much that comes with his jealousy? Does he expect all of our lives? Absolutely, but as one old pastor said, God gives what he demands. And the same God who is jealous over his people and can for a moment seem terrifying is the same God who in the same passage in Exodus 34 where he says he's jealous, says he's merciful, gracious, ever loving and willing to supply. God gives a greater grace when the apostle Paul kept, kept finding himself stumbling with whatever the enemy had come off with him, and he, Lord, take it, Lord, take it, Lord, take it. And what did God say? Because I know you see your weakness. I know you're frustrated by it. I know my grace, my grace which saved you, my grace which now works out that salvation is enough for you. My power in your life, which is because of grace, is perfected in your weakness. Church family, we better know and understand today. As we live in a world that fills our hearts and minds with whatever desire you've got, run after it. That as we who are saved by a God who says quite the opposite, says whatever you desire, great, bring it to me. I will meet your needs, I will meet your desires, and some of your needs and desires will have to die. Some of them are of me and I will fulfill, but I'll do it in my timing because it's not about us, it's about him. That, in the midst of that world, understand, we've got to understand God's grace, God's grace he is ever giving to enable us to meet his expectations to meet his demands, to meet what it means to know him, to love him, to follow him, living in a world filled with temptation and hostility. His grace is greater than our need. His grace is greater than even those times when I as a believer slip into patterns of the world and am walking not in fellowship with him but enmity. His grace is greater than even that because his grace has already saved me. His grace can preserve and pull me back from that sin. His grace is greater than our weakness. His grace is greater than, than the magnitude we're gonna look at next week as we unpack what really to do with all this. It says resist the devil and he will flee from you. It is by his grace that you and I possess the ability to stare the enemy in the eyes with the fullness of his temptation and say no. It's possible. 
It is possible to actually know God and to walk with him like he calls us to walk with him because he gives a greater grace. Not because we earned it well, Not because we read our Bible hard enough, not because we prayed hard enough, not because, listen, we do those things, we draw near, not to get his grace, but because we know his grace. And you will never, as a son or daughter of God, we will never come to a point where we deserve his grace. Never, not even in eternity. We don't deserve his grace. That's why when he shows it to us, it is grace. Oh, church family, do we, do we realize and, and know that we need grace? You go, I, I don't know how to be a good husband or wife. Guess what? Great. Now that you understand that, do you know you need grace? I, I don't know how to be a perfect parent. Great. Do, do you realize you need grace? I don't know how to, how to walk through this world as a young person with all these different, great. Do you know that you need grace? Do you realize you need grace? Do we realize that once you know you need grace, that God delights to give it? Oh, child, do you recognize your need for my grace? Mm, I'll I'll have to consider the the effort of your plea. God goes, oh, praise God, son, daughter, you finally realize, let me give you my grace. Let me show you my grace. Are we filled with the hope Church family, it is possible to know him and love him and follow him and not walk in some self-centered pursuit of my own need and desire and this and that. It is possible in the midst of this mess of a world to know and walk well with him in intimacy and fellowship that nothing in this world can compare to. It is possible, it's possible. Far from walking out discouraged because you recognize, maybe today you go, wow, here's some areas of my life that, that, that I'm walking in friendship with the world. Far from walking, if you walk out realizing that defeated, then you've missed the whole climax. If you walk out and go, wow, there are some areas of my life I am walking in friendship with the world, praise God. Respond to that, confess that, and guess what, Lord, Here's where I've been walking in the midst. Here's where I've been giving into this sin and temptation. Show me your grace. Help me experience your grace. Which, by the way, how do you experience God's grace? This is the key question. And just give you this. From verse 7 to verse 10, there are 10 commands. Because grace doesn't mean we do nothing. It means knowing his grace, we act out of that grace. But we're going to go in depth with that next Sunday. Because there's no way we were going to unpack Ten Commands today. But look what it says. How do you experience the grace of God as a child of God? Well, you've already experienced it. We all experience it in ways we're not even aware of. But look what it says. God is opposed to the proud, to the one who has a high and lofty opinion of themselves, to the one who thinks of themselves in a way that's inappropriate. And that can be both thinking too much of yourself and thinking too little of yourself. It can be self-applause and self-hate. Pride can come in either form. God is opposed. He stands in opposition to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want to know how to experience the grace of God today, church family? It's to humble yourself. 
It's to walk in humility, to see yourself rightly standing before God himself. It's to recognize that God didn't save you so we could figure it out. God saved you so we could walk in fellowship with him. And in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit, walking in the power by the Spirit, he would work out the salvation in us. It is in humility as we humble ourselves before the Lord, as we cast ourselves before him, as we acknowledge our need of him, as we submit to what he says, how he says it, when he says it, because it's him who says it, as we set ourselves in opposition to the enemy and what the enemy tempts us with and says is good, as we draw near to God, as we seek to know him, as we abide in him by faith all throughout the day, as, as we repent truly of, of when there's sin, all of this is what it means to humble ourselves before God. If you want to experience it, you say, Pastor, I I need to know His grace. Well, it's going to start, brother and sister, by humbling yourself before God. And none of us are exempt. There is a picture that I I have now of my grandfather's that hung in his office for years right next to his desk. And it's a picture, painting, of a pastor sitting by his desk. Everything's messy computer on, bad news from the world, having phone ring, bad news of death for church members, desk messy with all sorts of sermon notes, and you just see the pastor, his hands, the weariness of what is there. Then on the bottom, you see Jesus washing the pastor's feet. There are going to be times, more often than not, when we live in this world, it is overwhelming. It is overwhelming to deal with all that goes on in each of our own lives, the lives of our church family, those we love, the, the world, the, the news, what's there. It is overwhelming. In conjunction with that, we all have weaknesses. We're prone to sin and temptation. It is overwhelming to be a husband, to be a wife, to be a parent, to be a single person, to be old, to be young, to be in between. It, it is overwhelming. And if to that overwhelmingness we say, there's no hope, or I'm just going to pull myself up and do it, that's pride. But if to that overwhelmingness we fall down on our knees, what we will find is the God of the universe, the King of all creation, the Savior of our souls, is the one who leads us, who saves us, who leads us, who guides us, and who will bring us home by grace. And that's what he expressed as he watched the disciples' feet. He gives greater grace. Let's pray. Father, I know in my own life how overwhelming so many things can be. And Lord, and Lord if I'm honest, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a Christian, as a son of you, to think of all the ways, all the, what it means that you've to live out sonship, what it means to, to be the kind of husband you want me to be, the father you want me to be, to be the kind of pastor you want me to be. To, and all of a sudden there's all this, and Lord, if, 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 
I'm not careful, it can be debilitating in how overwhelming it is. And I know I am not the only one in this room who feels that way. But God, may we be a people who know and understand the grace that you saved us with. It wasn't just to save us once and now it's all on us. Lord, it is the same grace that goes before us, that goes with us, that sustains us, that preserves us, that convicts us, that restores us. Lord, you give greater grace. May we be people who humble ourselves so that we don't just talk about it in theory, but we experience it both aware and unaware. So Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray.